Good morning. Oh, it's good to be here with you. Uh, last Sunday, I had a chance to go visit our sister church, Covenant Presbyterian. Uh, and so it's, they send greetings, and it's good to be here uh, back worshiping with you all. Chance to look at God's Word together. Um, this morning, we're going to finish our fall sermon series. We've been uh, looking at the Beatitudes uh, this past many weeks, and uh, this will be the last of that series, and the next week we'll begin uh, an Advent series. In the Beatitudes, maybe you are familiar, you remember, or maybe they're new to you, but in the Beatitudes, Jesus offers us a group of sayings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this morning we'll look at the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right away we notice in the Beatitudes that there is this paradox, right, that it catches our attention that when we think of blessing, this is not normally how we think of it. Blessed are those who have poverty in spirit, Blessed are they who mourn, who are persecuted. And in offering us this surprise or offering us this kind of unexpected way of thinking of blessing, Jesus invites us to think again about the way of being that he calls us to in this world. It's a chance for us to think about the way that he sets forth as compared to a way of the world around us. And therefore, it's been an opportunity this many weeks to examine our own lives and hearts and think about whether our way reflects the way of Jesus or a different way. And when we look at ourselves, it's not always easy to do that, and so it's helpful to have a contrast, and so we've been contrasting the Beatitudes with the traditional list of vices. Pride, envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, lust, wrath, and today, gluttony. What I want us to see this morning is a contrast between courage and persecution, courage and persecution versus gluttony, or self-indulgence. So let's look at our passage. First we'll read from Matthew 5 as Jesus says these Beatitudes, and then we'll look at a passage from 1 Peter 3. It's printed in your order of worship. You can follow there. Matthew 5, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, First Peter 3. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, he made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This is God's word, given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we come ready to hear from you. But Lord, we acknowledge that this topic or this teaching is challenging and one that is also humbling. We ask that you would open our hearts, that we may hear and receive, that your spirit may lift our heads, that we find rest and hope in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning, the sermon, I want to have two parts. The first, we'll look at the Matthew 5 verses and contrast uh, courage and persecution with gluttony or self-indulgence. And then we'll look at some observations from 1 Peter 3 about this link between blessing and suffering. So we should start with this contrast. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is in contrast to the vice of gluttony. Gluttony sees life as all about comfort, especially through physical pleasures of food or drink, This way of being is in contrast to a way that sets on convictions or sets forth obedience even when it brings hardship. The way of gluttony is fundamentally selfish. Life is about keeping myself away from pain, keeping my comfort. And it is in contrast to love. Think about this. When we bind ourselves to others in love, when we open ourselves up to sacrifice and reordering our lives around someone or something other than ourselves, it will mean the challenge of discomfort. Let's think more about gluttony. If we we are embodied beings, everything we do involves our bodies. I want us to hear this morning, there's nothing wrong with attending to the needs of our body and even enjoying what we eat or drink. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a good thing. But all vices are a distortion of virtues. And gluttony seeks an excessive or immediate pleasure. We demand the richest foods. We greedily say, I want the food that I want when I want it. We eat too much or we indulge in the feeling of being full or we drink too much to enjoy the effects. And the question, though, of gluttony ultimately is not how much is too much. Rather, the way of self-indulgent reduces life down to avoiding discomforts. Do I rely on the pleasure of this food or drink to compensate for a lack of rest or peace in the midst of my life? Am I seeking the immediate pleasure of food or drink to numb pain or questions that wrestle within me? 
We can ask, why is the excessive immediate desire of such pleasure, why is it appealing to you and to me? Because gluttony ultimately is not just about pleasure, it's about finding a source of pleasure that you and I can control, that we can provide for ourselves that is immediate to us. The glutton seeks to take matters into his own hands. He doesn't want to wait for God, work through difficulties, examine his life, or fight the good fight. And while it will only make us feel full for a moment, we want immediate access to pleasure fully in our control. We want relief now by the food or the drink that we desire. In Dante's Inferno, this writing, he imagines different scenes of those who are suffering under different vices. And in Dante's Inferno, he pictures the souls of gluttons being forced to lie in this vile, putrid slush. It's really kind of a gross image, hoping that they'll find some pleasure in it. But the thing that I think that's interesting and he observes is that in this slush, one is unable to even know or see the others who are lying nearby with him. That which began as a mutual indulgence always leads to a solitary self-indulgence. And the one in the mud by himself is blind or heedless to his neighbors, symbolizing the selfishness or the emptiness that eventually arrives whenever we seek the immediate pleasures of food or drink. Can you picture that image? Hoping to find some sense of pleasure surrounded by others, but having no awareness of them, or no interest in them. Seeking life as comfort or the avoidance of difficulty always leads to being alone. Because when we open ourselves up in love, the certainty of suffering and certainty of difficulty. Sometimes this selfishness of gluttony can be loud and obvious. I want what I want when I want it. But other times it is subtle or hidden about how we use our money, how we construct our schedules, or even what relationships or responsibilities we are willing to sacrifice for the immediate and desired pleasure. And into this desire for control, and to this desire for control, and to this, this act of reducing life to the experiencing of pleasure and avoiding pain, Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who suffer. And we have to hear again that these attitudes they, they are to shock us, they are to surprise us, that what the worldly wisdom regards as kind of foolishness, Jesus lifts up as the blessed. Jesus was found unacceptable. He was nailed to the cross and rejected as a criminal. Yet God announced of Jesus, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And in Christ, God is blessing those that the world has rejected or dismissed. And we need to feel with Jesus that the blessing of the persecuted, the inappropriate, doesn't fit the way the world works. See, Jesus inviting us to look at the questions again about how we evaluate life, evaluate ourselves. For example, in the face of gluttony, we can say we are humans made by God for God, and so that the pleasure of food and drink, the hunger and thirst that we have, it can never be fully satisfied by what we bring into our bodies. But rather, our physical hunger and thirst matter they matter, but they point us to deeper longings, to a deeper longing for relationship and spiritual connection. 
Our hunger and thirst is meant to point us to our Creator, that we, you and I, were made for relationships. And at the center of all those relationships is the relationship with the one who made us. And in this union, it, it, this union with God, it's like any other relationship of love. It will mean trust. It will mean waiting. It will mean repentance. It will mean ordering our life in ways that are challenging. Or mean loyalty, even in difficulty. This deeper purpose sets us on a path. And Jesus invites us to identify with him. And living out that life, following God, even when it means cost or difficulty. And Jesus says that way, even when it means cost or difficulty, that union is the way of true blessing. So having looked at this contrast between gluttony, which is about comfort and avoiding pain, versus the blessing of the persecuted, those who are seeking to live in relationship to God, even when there is cost, I want us to look at the first Peter passage and make observations around this connection between suffering and blessing. And there's three observations I want us to see together. The first one is that suffering for righteousness' sake points to the brokenness of the world. It points to the brokenness of this world that we live in. I should be clear about this, that you and I as Christians, this passage is not saying that we should seek out trouble. Sometimes maybe you've heard spiritual people or Christian people talk this way, you know, somehow it's a badge of honor if I can stir up people not liking me. <laughs> That's not what this is saying. We shouldn't, stir, we shouldn't seek out trouble and we should not assume that any difficulty is persecution. Rather, in fact, it's, we affirm the call to love our neighbors and seek the common good in our homes, in our communities, in our schools and workplaces, with our words and with our lives. See, Peter even quotes from Psalm 34. That's this part that's set out in your order of worship. And then he asks the question, who is going to harm you if you seek good? And in this psalm and in this question, the Scripture is highlighting attention. It should be. It should be in life that when we seek to do good, that we will flourish, that it will go well. That if we want to see good days, as the psalm says, that we could keep our tongue and our way from evil and that we would flourish. And we see this reaping what we sow, this theme elsewhere in Scripture, especially in the Proverbs, this idea that the evil will suffer and that the righteous will flourish. And we can acknowledge that there are times in our life or in this world that we see that, that we see that there are good things that come when those do not do evil but do good. But sometimes that's the, not the dynamic. And we might say even most of the time, that's not the way the world works. And Scripture gives witness to that as well. Scripture gives voice to crying out as evil and selfish ones not only get away with it, but seem to prosper, why those who are seeking to follow God suffer for doing good. The attention, that tension that Scripture gives witness to affirms that you and I, that we live in a world that is broken. Who is going to harm you if you seek good? We live in an unjust and broken world where it happens all the time. And even Peter, as he affirms the way things should be, no harm for doing good. He's writing this very letter, First Peter, because Christians 
have been scattered out of their homes, and now they are facing accusation and slander and mistreatment. And as we recognize that this world is broken, we need to acknowledge that Christians are not the only ones who suffer. Many are neighbors nearby and neighbors far away. Many are mistreated, not because of evil actions, but because of their identity and their convictions. Also, sadly, we must confess that Christians at time, at times when in power, have practiced injustice and evil against their own neighbors. That we ourselves as Christians have acted in a way that is consistent with a broken world. Yet in a fallen world where power is often used to mistreat the other or secure one's own comfort, Jesus and his Beatitudes call us to a new way of being a new way, a way that he calls the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom is not about maximizing our comfort, whatever we have to do, but rather ordering our life around Jesus' sacrificial love and obedience to the Father. See, that brings us to the second observation, that this new way of being, even when costly, is blessed. That's what it gets down to, right? It's like, which way of life, which way is actually going to lead us to what is true life? Is seeking my own comfort, avoiding pain, will that actually lead to me being fulfilled and alive? Jesus is saying, no. There is a new way of being the kingdom of heaven, and while it will be costly, it is the way of blessing. And Peter echoes Jesus. Do you see in our passage right after the psalm and after he asks that question, is that if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He is echoing Jesus, a message that the, the church knew. The Sermon on the Mount, following the Beatitudes, the next couple of chapters, Jesus lays out the ways of his people and gives shape to this kingdom righteousness that will bring disapproval. And some of them, in seeking reconciliation and forgiveness, will be called cowards. In making decisions for sexual purity or fidelity, will be called closed-minded. In responding to difficulty with nonviolence, will be called weak. In actions of generosity, announcing that life is not just about money, will be called naive and wasteful. And in loving our enemies, will be called unpatriotic and foolish. As we think about how this way of life presses against the world, it's, it's important that we stop and acknowledge that the majority of the world's Christians live in countries of Western Europe, North America, and South America, that do not witness the harsh repression of other places in the world. I don't know all of our, your experiences, but most of us have had a little direct experience of intense religious repression that does impact some of our brothers and sisters who live in other parts of the world. And therefore, as we think about this, it should humble us, but also awaken us. Persecution comes when the dominant narrative is questioned. When the way things are understood is questioned. When one's presence or one's words are viewed as other. And no matter where we live, this call of Christ to a new way of being, the kingdom, that will mean letting go of idols, letting go of how the world works. 
The simple picture of idolatry, this idea of a human being bound down between some kind of piece of wood or metal, the Bible expands that greatly. It's not just about that scene, but it expands greatly to speak of idols seen and unseen that get to the heart and motivation of who you and I are. What will give me the good life? What will make me happy? Who or what will tell me who I am and what life is about? Wherever we direct such questions, such fundamental questions, whenever we direct them outside of God, we're directing them to idols, things that would speak into our identity. And there are all sorts of things. Our families create idols. Our neighbors and neighborhoods create them. Our work creates them. Our American society creates them. And our own hearts create these idols as well, hoping that we'll give answers to who we are. And the blessing of the persecuted is a disruption, inviting you and I to ask the question, will I build my life around money, or power, or reputation, the freedom to do whatever I want when I want, or the ways to maximize my comfort? Will I build it around those things? Or rather, will I, will I let Jesus order my money, order my schedule, order the way I think of who I am in blessedness. Whenever common assumptions and idols are questioned, it brings forth anger. Maybe you've noticed this in your own life, something that is important to you that speaks to your identity. When it's questioned, it flares up anger within us. And it's no different for societies. And Peter writes, though, in this new way of being this kingdom of heaven, that when Christians are mocked or when they are questioned or receive anger for not holding the same values, he says we can't be like everyone else, responding to difficulty with anger. He says as a church, we should practice being like-minded, loving, sympathetic, tender-hearted, and humble, and not only doing that together, but we should go outward and that we should be people of gentleness and respect towards all. The glutton refuses to see happiness or blessing as connected to suffering. But in our passage, like Jesus and Matthew, Peter puts them together, blessing and suffering. Blessed are you who live with Christ in union with Him, even when it means difficulty. Blessed are you who live as Christ's body in the world today. And that leads to the final part, the final observation for us to look at is that we're invited in this link between blessing and suffering to see Jesus and his suffering and his vindication as our hope. The final paragraph of this passage, there's a lot going on in there. We're not going to talk about Noah and all these other things happening. But the thrust of that section, that last paragraph, is that Peter affirms that Christ suffered and that Christ was vindicated. And that this gets at the heart of the gospel for us. Just as suffering was not the final word in Jesus' life, suffering or mistreatment will not be the final word in your life. You see how Peter explains the gospel? Jesus the righteous suffered for the unrighteous. Jesus the one who was innocent, who did what is good, suffered and was declared inappropriate. This was God's will that Jesus might bring us to God. And therefore, we're invited to trust Jesus that this all comes together in the last verses, that through the resurrection of Jesus, 
through his vindication, he has gone into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Therefore, he has authority over all power and over all other things that would seek to claim us or tell us who we are. In our Old Testament lesson that Vince read, there's a list of people in the, in the book of Hebrews talking about Old Testament saints who trusted God even in the midst of difficulty. It references the story of Abraham and Sarah who were longing to have a child and that God had promised that through you I will form a family and through that family all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And at one point Abraham asked, how can this possibly be? I'm getting so old and I have no child. How will it be that you'll keep your promise? And God invites Abraham and Sarah out of the tent and asks him to look at the sky and says, the number of stars you see in the sky is the number of descendants that you will have through my blessing. And what God is inviting Abraham and Sarah to do in that moment is to trust that God will do what they cannot do. That God will accomplish what is outside of the power of Abraham and Sarah. And in similar ways, God is inviting us to hear and again to see the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus has done what you and I cannot do. He has faced our sin and death. He's walked through them, come out as victorious and vindicated. And by faith, we are united to Him as we live in that union. Not only will we suffer with Him, but we will rise with Him. That what we cannot do for ourselves, forgiving our sins or having life in the midst of mistreatment or death, Jesus will do for us. There is no authority or power on earth or in heaven that can separate us from Him. And that union is represented in our passage as baptism, that when we are baptized in His name, when we have faith in His name, nothing can separate us from Him. No matter what people say of you, no matter how they treat you, no matter what they define you as, it cannot change your union with Christ. As we close, I want to encourage you to think about this call that life is not ultimately about comfort or avoiding pain even though the world might tell us that that's a good way to go, but life is found in our union with Christ and love. Sometimes the resurrection can seem far off and abstract, even as we think about that good news. And so it's important not only do we hold on to the resurrection of Jesus, but that we look at one another. For as we gather on this Sunday or when we go through our week, we have an opportunity to witness to each other, to encourage each other, not to live according to what the expectations are for us, but to live in light and hope of the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for who you are. We pray that you'd meet us in our sorrows, you'd meet us in our emptiness, you'd meet us in our fears, that we may trust and find our hope in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.